Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, Craig Baird here. Before I begin today's story, I want to take a moment and ask that you check me out on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. There are several tiers with great benefits, from ad-free content to t-shirts and other cool stuff. And if you're a fan of Canadian History X, make sure you check out my other shows, From John to Justin and Canada, A Yearly Journey. And don't forget, you can also donate directly to the show at www.canadaehx.com. It helps keep this show going. All right, on with the show. A listener's note. The following episode contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature, and may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. In November 1995, high above Earth's atmosphere... 358 kilometers to be exact, a young mustachioed Canadian was at the controls of a device installing a 4100 kilogram Russian built docking module. Down below on the white blanketed surface of his homeland, the country had just gone through one of its most trying moments. Days before, on October 30th, the people of Quebec had nearly defeated a referendum for independence launched by the ruling Parti Quebecois. For the man at the controls orbiting the Earth, his focus was not on Quebec independence, nor the recent break-in at 24 Sussex Drive in Ottawa, nor the fact his favourite hockey team, the Toronto Maple Leafs, were struggling to stay above 500 in the standings of the NHL. No, for him, his attention was glued to the operation and device that had become a Canadian icon, a device that would go on to be featured on currency, be displayed at the Smithsonian, and perhaps in the biggest honour of the 21st century, have a Google Doodle created in its likeness. The man, a new astronaut named Chris Hadfield, was operating a device called the Canada Arm, and he became the first Canadian to operate the famous tool in space. That amazing moment passed mostly unnoticed north of the 49, and it's just a small part of a story that is Canada in space. I'm Craig Baird, and this is Canadian History X. Although Canada may not be known as a space pioneer like the United States and Russia, it has a long and storied history, one that is too long for me to cover in a single episode. So today I'm going to focus on key chapters in our story, our role in the moon landing, our first satellite, and you guessed it, the Canada Arm. 
With the launch of Sputnik, the world's first artificial satellite by the Soviet Union on October 4, 1957, the world was suddenly thrust into the space age. Less than six months later, on February 1, 1958, the United States launched its first satellite into space, Explorer 1. For the next four years, only the Soviet Union and the United States ventured into space, while the rest of the world watched in awe. Then, on September 29, 1962, at 2.06 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, a new country entered space, Canada. On that day, Alouette 1 was launched into orbit on a rocket from the U.S. Air Force Base at Vandenberg, California. The new satellite's mission was to investigate the properties of the upper ionosphere. Using 700 different radio frequencies, it tested how the properties of the ionosphere varied depending on geographic location, season, and time of day. The reason our first satellite focused on the ionosphere is because Canada has the largest share of the aurora borealis of any country in the world, and at the time had the greatest radio interference from the aurora in the world. For 25 years prior to the 1960s, Canadian scientists studied the effects of the aurora and when the space race began, Canada jumped at the chance to take its studies into space. The task of building the satellite fell to Canada's Defence and Research Telecommunications Establishment, or DRTE. While the organization was made up of some of the brightest minds in Canada, they were venturing into new territory. Building Alouette 1 was a slow process that began in 1958, and the Canadian team dealt with several engineering problems including how to protect instruments, and, more importantly, how to transmit data. Eventually, the team designed two antennas that measured 150 feet from tip to tip, which were rolled up in the device at launch. Rolling and expanding antennas were first developed by the Canadian National Research Council during the Second World War, and that concept was applied to this new frontier. The antennas were so successful on Alouette 1 that the design was incorporated into many subsequent American satellites. As the Canadian team worked on the satellite, new technologies were advancing fast, allowing them to incorporate such things as solar cells and transistors. On board the satellite were 6,500 solar cells, providing power during its operational life. The satellite also had no tape recorder. So data was collected at stations located in Hawaii, Singapore, Australia, and Europe, as the satellite transmitted when it passed over them. Originally, it was called Topside Sounder, since it analyzed the top side of the ionosphere. By the time launch day came, though, the name was changed to Alouette, French for Skylark, after the famous French-Canadian folk song of the same name. The song is over 100 years old and is said to have originated in Quebec, Canada, and may have been sung by voyageurs, French-Canadian colonists who transported furs by canoe. As for that satellite, it weighed 321 kilograms and had a circular orbit around the Earth at an altitude of 987 kilometers. U.S. technicians said the launch and mission in general were successful, and thanks to Alouette 1, scientists learned much more about the magnetic and ionospheric storms that impacted radio communications on Earth. But no one knew how long the satellite would be operational. In fact, Dr. John Chapman from the Defense Research Telecommunications Establishment bet another scientist that the satellite would not be functioning a year after the launch. Dr. Chapman was very wrong, as the satellite operated for a decade. 
Dr. Chapman kept a framed record of the bet in his office as a reminder of his poor gambling instinct. On September 30, 1972, Alouette 1 was shut off, ending its 10-year mission. But it was just the first of many Canadian satellites to come. From 1963 to 1983, NASA put 12 Canadian satellites into orbit, helping Canada become an internationally renowned authority on communications and satellite design. In 2007, the Government of Canada listed the launch of Alouette 1 as a national historic event. And there's one more fact about this little satellite. While Sputnik fell back to Earth in 1958, and Explorer 1 returned in 1970, Alouette 1 is still orbiting the Earth, and will be for at least another thousand years. As the success of Alouette 1 lifted Canada into space, February 20th, 1959 is known as Black Friday in the Canadian aviation industry, because that's when the Avro Aero CF-105 program was cancelled. I covered the aircraft, the cancellation, and the legend surrounding it in a previous episode from late 2021, and I encourage you to go back and listen to that episode. You'll remember that when the Avro Aero program was cancelled, 14,528 Avro employees immediately lost their jobs, along with 15,000 others within the Avro supply chain. Many of those people were the best and brightest minds in their field, specifically engineers, and they needed work. Some moved to the United Kingdom and began to work in the new Concorde program, a supersonic passenger jet. Others went to the United States. In fact, NASA recruiters were in Canada within weeks doing interviews with those engineers who are now unemployed. The first person to be hired was Avro Aero Chief of Technical Design, Jim Chamberlain. Joining Chamberlain were 31 other engineers from the Avro program who served as program managers and lead engineers on the Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo programs. When those engineers joined NASA, they made up 30% of the agency's space task group. Chamberlain, who was from Kamloops, British Columbia, served as the chief designer of the Gemini spacecraft and then helped design aspects of the Apollo program. He was instrumental in the planning of the orbital rendezvous system that allowed astronauts to land on the moon using a landing module that had been attached to the main spacecraft. Originally, NASA was going to launch Apollo 11 directly from the Earth to the moon, then back again, with no lunar orbit phase. When Chamberlain came up with his lunar orbit rendezvous plan, that original plan was scrapped. Owen Maynard was another one of the Avro engineers who found work at NASA. Originally from Sarnia, Ontario, he moved the family to Virginia in April of 1959 to begin work with the company. By 1963, Maynard was the chief of system engineering for the Apollo program and was the designer of the lunar module, which took Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin to the moon's surface on July 20th, 1969. Now, if the orbital rendezvous system and the lunar module weren't enough, there was one more major component in which Canada played a role in the moon landing, the landing gear. The contract for the landing gear was given to a company out of Quebec in 1966, Hero DevTech. The company received the contract in 1966, three years before the planned moon landing. And designing the landing gear for the lunar module was no easy task. It needed to be light enough to conform to mission requirements and strong enough to absorb the energy of the landing, 
while keeping the module upright and stable. On top of that, it had to serve as a stable launch platform to return the astronauts to lunar orbit. The solution that the firm came up with was a crushable aluminum honeycomb design for the legs. And as the landing gear on the lunar module touched the moon's surface, the people at the company looked on in pride. It was their company that produced the telescopic legs on the module that allowed those astronauts to safely touch the moon. And while the footpads themselves were made by Americans, nine of the ten parts in the legs were Canadian. And Canada also played a role in getting the astronauts home safely as well. Brian Earp from Calgary, Alberta, another Avro engineer, developed the heat shield that protected the astronauts as their capsule returned to Earth through the atmosphere. And then back on Earth, Dr. William Carpentier, a Canadian flight surgeon from Edmonton, looked after Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins during their quarantine. Now that Canada had helped land humans on the moon, the country then took on another task, creating a robotic arm in space. Other than maybe insulin, no Canadian invention is as famous as the Canada arm. The device, officially known as the Shuttle Remote Manipulator System, has become a source of pride for Canadians. The Canada Arms' operational use began in the 1980s, but its history dates back to the year of the moon landing. It was in 1969 that NASA invited Canada to participate in the Space Shuttle program in a yet-to-be-determined role, but a manipulator system was a possibility. Around this time, DSMA Atcon, a Canadian company, developed a robot that loaded fuel in the can-do nuclear reactors, and it was this robot that piqued NASA's attention. In 1975, a Memorandum of Understanding was signed between NASA and the Canadian National Research Council, committing Canada to developing and constructing the Shuttle Remote Manipulator System, which would become the Canada Arm. SPAR Aerospace, now part of MDA, was awarded the contract to design, develop, test, and evaluate the new device. The hardest part of the design wasn't the arm itself, though, but the manipulator that needed to be versatile enough to pluck objects out of orbit while also clearing things like ice off the shuttle itself. Several designs were put forward, but then-engineer Tony Zbritsky was playing with an elastic band that he had wrapped around his hand. As he played with it, an idea struck him. The end effector, or hand of the arm, could use the same principle of fingers with an elastic band. He took the idea to NASA, who loved it, and the end effector was built inspired by office supplies. On February 11, 1981, a ceremony was held for NASA in Toronto, and it was there that Larkin Kerwin, the head of the Canadian National Research Council, gave it the name of Canada Arm. The first Canada Arm was delivered to NASA in April 1981. The arm was 50 feet long and weighed 900 pounds. It was developed with six joints that corresponded with the joints of the human arm, including a shoulder yaw, elbow pitch joint, and a wrist pitch. The total cost amounted to about $100 million or $300 million today, while the total cost associated with maintenance and testing reached $600 million or $1.8 billion today. And displayed prominently on the arm? The word Canada and the Canadian flag. As a CBS news anchor said, it's not just a tool, but a billboard. On November 13, 1981 at 9 a.m., Richard Truly deployed the Canada arm out of the shuttle bay of the Columbia while orbiting the Earth for the first time. He reported to Mission Control, 
The arm is out and works beautifully. Its movements are much more flexible than they appear during training simulations. On the next shuttle mission, the Canada Arm deployed its first payload, which was the Plasma Diagnostics Package. The Canada Arm was developed to handle deploying payloads of 65,000 pounds in space, but upgrades eventually allowed it to handle payloads of up to 586,000 pounds in the 1990s. Now the first arm was so successful, NASA ordered four more to be installed on the other space shuttles. Over the course of the space shuttle program, the five Canada arms flew on 90 different missions. In 1986, one Canada arm was lost in the Challenger disaster when the space shuttle Challenger exploded soon after takeoff, tragically killing all on board. In 1993, it was the Canada arm that moved the 12-ton Hubble Space Telescope into the cargo bay of Endeavour so that it could be repaired when an issue with the mirror on the telescope resulted in blurry images. And the Canada arm also served as a symbolic bridge between the former adversaries when Chris Hadfield operated it in 1995. He used the arm to create a physical link between the Russian space station Mir with the American space shuttle. Front end loaders and the combines and things that I drove as a kid growing up uh, were very similar to what I'm going to be doing with this arm. Seems very strange that you're the first Canadian to use the Canada arm. It's about time, isn't it? Yeah, I'm pleased that I'm going to get a chance to use the Canada arm. That's going to be an honor and a thrill. And and the beauty of it is it's a beautiful flying piece of equipment. So it's something that everyone takes pride in, and me especially being Canadian. The arm was highly versatile, whether it was plucking satellites out of orbit to repair or knocking ice from a vent that would have endangered the re-entry of the space shuttle into the atmosphere. Once, the arm was used to nudge a bent, malfunctioning antenna into place. Now currently, the Canada Arm 2 is part of the International Space Station. The device used to hoist the Canada Arm 2 out of the space shuttle cargo bay? Well, that was the Canada Arm. And during the construction of the International Space Station, the Canada Arm 2 worked alongside with the Canada Arm to hand over segments from the station for assembly. The use of both arms in tandem earned the nickname of the Canadian Handshake. We've been waiting for this moment for a long time. Um, We've been waiting, I guess, for this particular maneuver that's happening today since Wednesday. The first robotic handoff in orbit is complete. Finally, today it came, the so-called handshake between the old and new Canada arms. Much anticipated, much delayed. On Wednesday, all three command computers crashed, and it delayed the testing of the billion-dollar arm. The main computer was back up on Thursday and early this morning. uh, Very good news that for the first time uh, in a couple of days uh, that the backup computer has been brought up. With two computers online, NASA decided to proceed. Is giving a go for the robotics operations plan for today. That's where one arm hands off a packing crate to the other. This maneuver is vital to any future construction of the space station. The Canada Arm 2 would assemble the entire space station piece by piece, playing a critical role in the most expensive engineering project in human history. And while the new arm was developed over the course of 15 years of research and development, it looked very much like the original. If something isn't broke, why fix it? As for the original Canada Arm, its 90th mission was in July 2011 on STS-135, when it delivered the final payload to the International Space Station. And if you'd like to see it in person, you can go to the Kennedy Space Center Visitor Center, where there's one on display. 
As for the one that served on the Discovery Space Shuttle, it's at the National Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C., while the one on Endeavour is at the Canada Aviation and Space Museum in Ottawa. The Canada Arms cultural impact was massive, and Mike Greenlee, CEO of MDA, a leading robotics company that in 1999 bought the Space Robotics Division of Spar Aerospace, manufacturer of the Canada Arm, spoke to me about it. Yeah, it's not just that it's Canada's most sort of iconic uh, uh, space um, innovation, it's Canada's most iconic innovation. So when you ask Canadians, you know, what's a what's a what are big inventions or big innovations that have occurred in technology in Canada? Um, they'll say Canada Arm. It'll come out first. Um, it's interesting, you know, like people have invented medicine and cured big diseases <laughs> and like all kinds of crazy things. It's just people don't know about it. So it's 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 awesome that it's a it's a, a simple enough concept to have space based robotics with that Canadian emblem on it um, up there at the International Space Station. And uh, the fact that it's on our currency on the back of our five dollar bill. To watch the entire interview, head over to my YouTube channel. The link is in my show notes. Mike Greenlee says that they're now looking towards the future as MDA is currently developing the Canada Arm 3, which will be part of the Lunar Gateway, the space station planned to orbit the moon by 2030. Our role in this is to deliver Canada Arm 3, which is the next generation artificial intelligence-based robotics. As I mentioned, the station won't be uh, staffed all the time, won't be crewed all the time, and uh, it's a long way away. As a result of those two things, um, we operate robotics from Earth, um, but it needs to be able to uh, run autonomously so we can give it a series of instructions and then it can operate robotics and complete its tasks um, autonomously for a period of time, many days. And then we would talk to it again and see how things are going and, you know, give it some new instructions. And so the uh, the robotics would be used to finish assembling gateway, to be able to maintain gateway, to be able to assist with uh, docking and berthing, to be able to manage uh, payloads, scientific payloads that might be put on the outside of gateway. Um, so there's a range of tasks that it would be involved in to make the, uh, the space station function well in orbit around the moon. Perhaps the greatest legacy of the Canada Arm is that it opened the door for Canadian astronauts. Chris Hadfield said, Canada Arm was really our ticket on board, and that allowed Canada to be part of the space program. If there had been no Canada Arm, there would have been no Canadian astronauts. Having the agreement between Canada and NASA allowed our first class of astronauts to be hired. So that's the end of this chapter of Canada in Space. But there's one more interesting story about Canada, the moon, and a very long-distance phone call. On June 5, 1959, Prime Minister John Diefenbaker stood at the Prince Albert Radar Laboratory, located near the city of Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, where a platform had been erected near the station's antenna. Joining him was Hartley Zimmerman, Chairman of the Defence Research Board of Canada, Richard Wigglesworth, the US Ambassador to Canada, and 40 scientists from both countries. After giving a speech, Diefenbaker pressed a button on the podium, and the 84-foot antenna was activated and pointed to the moon. Now in reality, the button did nothing. Diefenbaker pushing it was just a signal to the radar lab staff to point the device towards the moon, and as it lined up, a voice rang out on the speaker stating, I am delighted to greet you, Mr. Prime Minister, and the Canadian people on the occasion of the opening of the Prince Albert Radar Laboratory. The voice was that of Dwight Eisenhower, President of the United States. The message had been sent from Milestone Radar site near Boston, 
directed at the moon, where it bounced off of and came back to Earth to be picked up by the radar station in northern Saskatchewan. With that, human communication would never be the same again. We may not bounce messages off the moon, but we use satellites with the same principle to surf the internet, make phone calls, and watch television. Thank you for joining me this week on Canadian History X. Information from Canadian Encyclopedia, Maclean's, Reader's Digest, Wikipedia, Canadian Space Agency, NASA, Library and Archives Canada, The Weather Network, Global News, CBC, and Space Q. This show is researched, produced, and written by me, Craig Baird, with the help of Dila Velasquez. Audio production and design by Rosalind Kufor. If this is your first time listening and you like what you heard, please take a moment and give us a five-star review to help other people find these amazing stories. And there are so many for you to sink your teeth into. If you enjoy this podcast, then please check out my other podcasts, From John to Justin, Canada, A Yearly Journey, Pucks and Cups, and Canada's Great War. We love hearing from you, so if you have a show topic you want me to cover, email me at craig at canadaehx.com, or stop by my website and social media. I'll include all of those in my show notes. Until next time, I'm Craig Baird, and this is Canadian History X.